Welcome to the Call It Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to discuss Smedley Butler and the business plot, which was the alleged effort to install a fascist system here in the United States in the early 1930s. And later on, we're going to take a look at the idea of chronotypes and consider the extent to which the idea of an early bird or a night owl could be something that's coming from our genes and not just our habits or, you know, whatever. Joining me today is a man who, if you let him dream, he may have a shot at eventually being considered the king of podcasting. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, are you ready to bring hip shaking to the mainstream of podcasting? I'm ready to go somewhere else when you say that if you let me dream, but I guess <laughs> I'll take on the podcast challenge. Yes. There we go. There we go. So make it happen. <laughs> All right. Now, we're recording this on September 5th, 2022. And today we wanted to take a look back and discuss one of the more overlooked, but honestly concerning efforts in American history. It involves employing a private army to either overthrow the Franklin, administ- Franklin Roosevelt administration or at least render him a puppet and install a fascist dictator to run the executive branch of our country and you know, really just run the whole thing. The plot was brought to light by Smedley Butler, who was a decorated Marine, like the Marines Marine, the, the, the model Marine, you know, well-decorated everything, conflicts from Spanish-American War in 1898, you know, for, for decades after that. And he was recruited on behalf of many titans of capital and industry to, to be a leader of this private army and that, that would dislodge FDR from power. Butler you know, was an enduring patriot, however. And that means, remember, patriotism is loyalty to the Constitution. And so he brought the plot to light and ultimately testified to Congress about what was going on. And following a congressional investigation and hearings and so forth, Congress's report did find Butler's allegations to be credible and corroborated. But after that, in large part, it seems like everybody kind of moved on and the, the alleged conspirators were not prosecuted or really even publicly identified at the time, at least. So just kind of an interesting way that all that resolved. So to get us started, Tunde, what was most notable to you in this story about the, you know, the, the quote unquote business plot and then Smedley Butler blowing the whistle and then, you know, kind of how it was handled after after he blew the whistle? Yeah, man. Great question. Um I'd say like several topics we've covered on you know, the last couple of years of this podcast, I'd say uh, one of the things that stuck out is that this isn't something I learned in school. Um, yeah. You know, this isn't something that I think most of us as Americans understand and know that this was really part of our history, that there was an actual um, coup planned, uh, not executed, but planned in a serious way, uh, like you said, um, by people that probably could have pulled something off, uh, meaning uh, they 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 had enough, the industrialists that had enough power and wealth that they could have pulled this off. Uh, yeah, this is a bunch a of guys way. in their in their mom's basement. Yeah, you know, like this is like the big the people who do the biggest make the biggest moves in the country. Yeah, and and what's interesting though is similar because it you know, and that's what kind of stood out to me too is reading about that period in time in American kind of history and culture the 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 early nineteen thirties through the mid thirties, there were a lot of similarities uh, that from today and 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 one of the things I think just specifically to this attempt uh, 
that I found similar to, um, you know, let's say the, the, the January 6th insurrection and those attempts were that, um, number one, former military members were sought out. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in, in the 1930s, in this coup attempt, it was the um, uh, Smedley Butler, as you mentioned, former uh, Marine general. Uh, and then the, 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 the organization that was tapped was the American Legion, which mm-hmm. was ripe with former soldiers. Um, yeah, better veterans. And, yeah. and if we look at today's, you know, the, 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 the January 6th event, you know, there were groups like the Oath Keepers. And the three percenters and, and, and groups like that, which quote unquote, I guess what we could call militia groups today. But as we learned from the January 6th insurrection, there were um, unfortunately many retired uh, and some active uh, military and law enforcement who took part of this. So I think it's kind of, you know, the idea of violence as a means to a political end, because a small group who has power, you know, through wealth is not happy with the direction uh, of the country from the electoral process, you know, meaning the the, the process of Americans voting and the majority rule type of thing, that uh, fascism seems to be the alternative, which is the use of violence for political ends. And intimidation. Yeah, so that's to me what was interesting was, first, we generally have not been taught this in American history, and number two, then uh, the kind of the, the the mirroring of some recent events, and and not just the events themselves, but the kind of rhetoric and culture that we see in politics today in America. Yeah, one of the things actually with that that stood out was that when he blew the whistle, how a lot in the, a lot of places in the media, yeah. it was uh, he's it's a hoax, and yeah, literally you know, he's it was making a, it. They up. used the word hoax. That's yeah, what they I mean. used the word hoax. <clears throat> like it, it was to tr- the e- effort to try to discredit him. Immediately, because you know, if you have a bunch of titans and capital and industry out there, you got you got newspapers, you got you know media control, and so now, and in, in that those days, you know, things were very ownership was very concentrated in many respects. So it was interesting to me to see how the media initially, you know, generally speaking, you would imagine they're doing this at the direction of of who's owning and controlling it, but jumped on them as it, this was not credible to try to discredit it immediately. Because it's it's a very shocking thing to come out with, and so Butler going in is a very credible guy. Because this guy, the reason they went out, they wanted him, is because, and, and I think the quote is, he could get a million you know veterans to follow him tomorrow. You know, like he he's you know he's that renowned as far as you know as the you know a general from the armed forces thirty plus. You know, at this point, it had been thirty years. You know, since he first started serving, and you know so. They looked at him as kind of the linchpin of this. Like we can put together this private force that can exert, that can do this intimidation that we want to do easily. We got the money, but we now we need, you know, like the the the, the, the brown shirts or you know something yeah. of that nature. And so, to me, like how he becomes like he's chosen because of his credibility, but then he he's not with it. He's not down with it. And so, and then they they approached him several times. You know, so it, like if you read more on it, like just. Kind of they approached him, hey, would you do this? Or, hey, would you do that? And then ultimately it came down to, okay, here's what we really want. And like that he went from the chosen one, the one that's like, oh, this guy's so credible. This guy's so serious that if we want to pull this off, this is the guy that can get the muscle behind it for us to immediately, he he's a joke. He's, he's This is the worst guy ever. Like the, how the media just flipped it on him like that. And it just shows how control of messaging 
yeah. you know, can be so vital with these things. Cause I think that plays into ultimately how the public perceives it, how important the public, how much importance the place, the public places on it. And it's the, one of the reasons why, you know, fr- freedom of speech and not having just one voice or two voices in the media is very important because one or two voices are much more easily compromised than 20 or 30. Yeah. So, I mean, along that line though, what does stand out to you as far as what was happening in the U.S. and around the world at that time that could make, you know, like the U.S. right for such prominent citizens to, yeah. to seek to take out democracy? <laughs> and, um, and, no, it's interesting. You know? I think it's a very, um, we're in a very similar period. I mean, that, that great saying that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think we do have a rhyme from the, the, the 20s to the 30s. Um, 1920s to 30s to kind of this era now, which is, you know, you had a big boom in the 1920s, which then led to a collapse. Um, I shouldn't say the boom led to it, but, but we had a collapse after the crash of 1929, which then the world, because of new technologies, remember back then, um, you know, the early 20th century, basically the telephone was brand new. Um, the radio was brand new pretty much. Airplanes were pretty new. Automobiles were new. So you had all these new technologies, which allowed what? Information to spread exponentially in a way that prior generations weren't used to. And so what you have is... Well, um, and also just to your point, like, and the public was still learning how to deal with, how to decipher what was real, what was just like, remember the whole, the, the war of the world story on yeah. the radio and like people yeah. are thinking it's literally an invasion yeah. because they're playing that. So the people just, it was so new that people didn't, didn't have a sophistication with it yet. And yeah, then also I mean, there like, probably wasn't regulation in place. And, and to, not to make fun of people, right? But, but, but world of worlds is, is, is you fast forward today would have been something like Pizzagate or some of this QAnon stuff, right? Yeah. Like people are just taking it literal just because it's on the internet. Like you're yeah. saying, just because, like, because the news was reported on the radio in the 1930s. Then when somebody came out with the world of the worlds that Martians were landing here, people believed it like it was <laughs> official. And so you're right. That's what I mean. Like you have these, that's what I was going to get to. Now we have today, we have, you know, in the last, let's say two generations, the new things are, you know, the cable TV is pretty new. Um, satellite, uh, the ability to broadcast radio um, and, and syndicate shows, um, talk radio shows and all that to get a certain narrative around the country. Then you go to the internet, like we just talked about, and then you, you, you take the internet and you, and you take certain branches of it, like what developed with social media, things like YouTube, all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, I think, yes, we're similar in new technologies that like you, you well put it, people are still trying to figure out how to navigate them. Yeah. Plus then, as I alluded to, you have some economic um, conditions which are favorable to authoritarians because what happens, you know, whether it was the Great Depression of 1930 or let's say the Great Recession of the 2008 to 2010, 2012 period, that gave rise to people who could then point fingers at other groups or other people within the same nation and say, see, it's their fault. It's their fault that you're living, that this you lost your job. It's their fault that the stock market crashed. It's their fault. It's their fault. And then you add to it, um, you know, uh, changing demographics, right? Like you think about the early 20th century, domestically in the United States, we had a lot going on. We had the great migration of African-Americans from the South to um, the North, the Midwest, and the West, which created tension within the country from about 1910 through 1930. 
Then you had um, the great migration of Europeans, right? You had, um, remember, Ellis Island and all these stories yeah. on the East Coast. So you had Italians, immigrant, uh, Irish, sorry, German people immigrants. People look at now like, oh, that was, you know, that they look back fondly. Like, that was, but yeah. that caused a lot of tension. Yeah. You know, and there was a lot of tension know. within European groups. I mean, this isn't just racial, like, like black and white stuff. I mean, there was huge um, discrimination against German Americans for, oh, sorry, German immigrants when they were, when they were going into the Midwest and, and the Dutch and areas like Wisconsin and Minnesota. Um, and there was a lot of discrimination with that. And that's one reason why those groups had to move out West because what they called the native white Americans, uh, the ones that were kind of the, the snooty ones that could trace their roots off of ships from Britain, you know, in the 16 and 1700s, they didn't want them living on the East coast. So they kind of pushed them out West or pushed them down to the South. So when you have those, what I call those three main forces of technological change, negative macroeconomic forces, and then you have um, human migration patterns, which create demographic changes, which allows for tribalism to be kind of like a scab to be picked. Then you kind of have this 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 um, this this uh, um, condition that's like ripe for an authoritarian style. And I think what well, yeah, we I saw. Think, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say because I think what it is basically like what I would say, and it kind of pulls in what you're saying, but it's like before the New Deal democracy and our form of kind of unfettered monopoly capitalism just wasn't working for for much of the population many segments of the american people and so and that leads into what you're saying like these conditions happen and people may become more receptive of a more authoritarian or intimidation based style of leadership like no we're going to make this happen because we're going to make everybody else scared of us or something like that and so cuz remember at that time in the early 1930s, you know, late 1920s or whatever, fascism wasn't the bad word that it is. Yeah. You know, like there were people who you know, openly were, were fascists or, you know, like it, and there's an American Nazi party and all this other type of stuff. And so that we, we know that now post genocide, you know, that, 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 you know, they went through with the Nazis in Germany. But at that time, it was something that wasn't immediately you heard it. And it's like, oh, no, like that's not us or whatever. So. There was that at that time, you know, Great Depression, everything like that. Our government wasn't living up to providing a better life, so to speak, for people. And so, and that honestly, that was why the New Deal was very important, is because that was kind of leading out of that was when the government was able to deliver prosperity more broadly. But at the time, you have record of wealth inequality. Like that was the big thing. It's in terms of your your second point as far as how the economic yeah. conditions weren't. Not only did you have the contraction, but the the gains weren't when, when things went well it wasn't going well for everybody for most people it, it only yeah. went well for very few when things went poorly it went well for the, those same ones that it didn't go that well for, that, that great for when it was good so i think with though with with that type of stuff those kind of conditions people look around and say well look maybe democracy isn't the case and, and i guess with the that this plays with the 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 demographic changes too like look Maybe yeah, maybe democracy isn't the right way. Maybe we should just more of us. So why don't we instead of trying to, to all vote together, why don't we just stand there and not let these other people vote? You know, type yeah. of thing. And I, so mean, I that's think kind that's of, what, what you see. Well, that's really what what I think. It's very interesting because when you think of European style fascism, if I can call it that, because I think you know fascism is just a, it's 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 new in the last century or so because it's an offshoot of the industrial revolution and the way. Human societies began to organize themselves, you know, post, let's say, uh, mid 1800s. 
So um, like you, you couldn't have fascism in a, in a monarchy because there ain't, there's no, there's no politics and no voting. So, um, yeah, so my yeah, point it's, is, it's is that, like a, that modified, like there's a, it, there's a appearance of a democratic element, but yeah, like you said, like in a, in a monarchy, like you don't need all that. Yeah, yeah, King owns no, everything anyway. So, yeah. So, so that's why to me, fascism is interesting just because it's, it's, it's an offshoot of these new styles of, you know, the last couple hundred years of organizing large societies, but it's the, it's the, it's the default version that seems to be, um, attractive when everything else seems broken in the system. And it's easy to tell for, for let's say the right charismatic leader. Um, that's why it's interesting guys like Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, you know, obviously they were terrible human beings, but they were very charismatic in their day and they galvanized and, and, and caught the attention of their, of their respective nations. And so what I'm getting at is you're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I was going is that at the time in the 30s, early to mid 30s, there were a lot of Americans that were attracted to this, to Adolf Hitler, the Nazis. They were seen as very strong. Yeah. Um, we were weak. You know, we, we, this, this whole democracy thing and trying to give everybody a say was seen as weakness. So, and there was famous people. I mean, Charles Lindbergh was a sympathizer of Adolf Hitler's. Um, Henry Ford is someone who expressed sympathy with those kind of views. A lot of people don't know this. You can look it up. He wrote a series of pamphlets in the early 1920s titled The International Jew. And Henry Ford, a big anti-Semite. And his, I mean, he, he basically was parroting what the Nazis, you know, and the Nazis took some of the stuff he was saying in his pamphlets uh, from the early 20s and, and used it in their rhetoric in the 30s. You know, and then you had this group that was formed in 1936 called the German-American Bund. And those are the ones, if anyone wants to look it up, you can see they had held Nazi rallies in Madison Square Garden in the late 30s, um, you know, in, out in the open, swastikas and everything. So it kind of reminded me of today, uh, not today, today, but meaning this last decade or so, as people in America, some on the right, uh, have been fawning over perceived strong men around the world, right? Yeah. So we have like, remember... Up until the invasion of Ukraine in February of this month of this year, sorry, um, a lot of people were starting to fall in love with Vladimir Putin in the United States. And remember this whole thing, how he was a strong leader, strong, and well, compared to our leaders, you look know, at what's happening kind of with Hungary, still yeah. happening with Hungary and Orban, like they, well, that's like, what I was. I, yeah. They were next on my list, bro. Yeah. We're on the same page because I had CPAC inviting Viktor Orban a month or two ago from this yeah. recording to the Texas CPAC convention. And he says in his speech that, you know, uh, race mixing isn't good or however he wants to say it. And then a major news channel, which calls itself conservative here in America, um, sent one of its star hosts to Hungary to do a whole expose of how great the Hungarian system is. Well, yeah, I mean, because I, I, I agree with you, by the way, like the it, it, there is the appeal of the projection of strength. And but that strength also like what that projection is a lot of times is we're going to to assert dominance over others, you know, like and that's kind of anti the the kind of democratic thought process or mindset, because in a democratic everybody's supposed to get a say. And like you said, people perceive that as weaker a lot of the times. And I know that from uh, just like look, just reading on this kind of stuff over the years, a lot of smart people over time have pointed to the idea of imperialism and how, you know, and using, you know, like using force to go into other countries and then extract what we want or allow our people to, to do what they want to do ultimately brings home the kind of imperial thinking 
and that, that you're like is then used to, to, to say, yeah, it's important that we project this strength. And so I'm not here making that argument, so to speak. I can see the merits of it, but it's just interesting to me how you know, in some facets, even in the democracy, in our you know our democracy, in some facets of the way America gets down, it is about we do project strength. You know, like international relations and things like that. It's not all about when you know when yeah we have elections when we're doing our own leadership, but there is there is there are times for no no, no we're not here to talk. We're here to you know like we're here to to, to do business you know and yeah. so forth. So you can understand that 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 is appealing because. It's like, hey, yeah, you know, people who some people want to have a meeting, some people want to get stuff done, you know, and so like you, you can understand how yeah. then the, the, when you have the charisma behind it as well. But ultimately, and again, you've talked about this before. That's why the setup of our country. It, I mean, it happened. It was set up before we saw a lot of this stuff. But as you said, things rhyme over throughout history. It's set up the loyalty supposed to be to the document. You know, and so that's why it's supposed to to keep people from becoming basically where it's like we're just in it for this person. The loyalty is it's not idolatry. You mean I'm not supposed to have a man crush? Hey, man, you can do the man crush, all you want, <laughs> but it's not supposed to be how we're governing. You know, and so I mean, honestly, I think that what I say all this to say that you can basically you can see the human element in all of this. And how this happens, you know, like there was concern of going off the gold standard or the government with the New Deal trying to to help create a middle class and give people more buy in into the country. There in the spending involved with that. But, you know, like the, the, the system in place is set up to allow that kind of thing to take a chance. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, in four years or whatever, you, you'll be able to get back in and undo it all if you want. But these people didn't want to do that. They were like, yo, we, we got to go. We're not waiting for the next election. We're not doing all that. And so that's where we go awry, basically, is when people decide unilaterally that, you know what, whatever just happened is so serious. I don't care. We're not waiting for another election. We're going to take power. Or we're going to take back what's ours right away without regard for process. And that's when you get into the anti the things that are remembered as anti-American, at least hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> remembered. No, well, it's that's where I was going to get to um, was the next question I have for you, though. Would you add something on this, though? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because some of the stats actually are, um, you know, that that this 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 cabal, this group of um, wealthy industrialists, um, they controlled about 40 billion in assets at the time, which is about 800 billion today. Which and, is a uh, lot. <laughs> yeah. And they had 300 million to support the coup, which um, they don't give in today's dollars, which obviously would have been a lot. And it, the, it says the plotters had men, guns, and money, uh, you know, three elements that make for a, a successful revolution. And basically, it's funny, J. Edgar Hoover is a part of this story. Butler, Smedley Butler reported it to J. Edgar Hoover, and Hoover Correct. is the one who told FDR. Correct. And so, and so, but what they had was their their plan was um, because the arms were supplied by Remington. See, that's the, that's the interesting thing about the control of, of industry, right? Yeah. Um, that you have the resources, and they were going to have um, established a fascist dictatorship backed by a private army of 500,000 former soldiers. Yep. Which is interesting because you figure with a country as big and vast as the United States, I mean, that would have been a disaster because I just don't think they could have held it all together for too long. I mean, there would have been people revolting anyway and all that. So it just Well, you never another- know, though, because once these kind of things take hold, then what they do basically, as you've pointed out, if they're serious, they go through and either make people profess lo- more people profess loyalty to them or they get them out. 
one yeah. way or the other. And so you never know, like once if they would have been able to take power, then whether they would have been able to leverage, they, they, they would have had a window that they would have had to leverage to stay in power and whether they would have done that or not. Cause it would have been, it well, would have been like, it, it, honestly, it, it, it seems like they had a much more organized situation than what we saw here um, leading up to January 6th in terms of um, which, and, and, and it was a very different um, thing. These were people trying to get a president out of power um, through means other than politics. Yeah. yeah. And this was, and what we had leading up to January 6th, 2021 was a president who, who had been in power who didn't want to leave. But I think the one striking similarity is the use, uh, the desire to use violence and intimidation as a means to solve a political desire. And I think that's that's to me that the standout is that. In but both you always, it's always violence and intimidation because it's not always violence. Sometimes yeah. it's just we're going to all show up and we're going to walk in and you're you're going to we're going to make you afraid to do anything other than what we tell you, or we're going to yeah. send no, threats. I mean, where you know, threats aren't violence per se, but they yeah. are a means to try to influence people to do things that you want them to do that they don't want to do. But I mean, that's the key, right? Like those 500,000 soldiers, the one area that, that, that says that they were going to do is they were going to go to the Capitol. Yeah, they were going to go to the White House Avenue, yeah. and they were going to take everybody out, like physically go into Roosevelt's office and be like, dude, you're out of here. And yeah. everyone down the line that could have, that he could have, could, could have succeeded him. The whole chain of succession. Yeah. Yeah. And it's no different than. Um, people storming the Capitol on January 6th, armed, and all the stuff we learned from these hearings that that the president and others knew that people were armed by eight in the morning, and the idea that it was intimidation, trying to intimidate the vice president and others to do the bidding of the sitting president. To not allow who, the transfer of power to happen. To not allow the transfer of power. Yeah. And so what what I'm getting at it, again, not to make this all about, you know, this, 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 this recent election and all that, is just this idea that. That's that to me is what the definition of fascism is, is or one of the main tenets of fascism. Let's put it that way. Besides, obviously, the 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 the, the corporate and capital structure yeah. being totally controlled by the government. What well, what you got to get to before or vice that? Versa, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like basically, you would say they merge together. Well, that's what I mean. Then they're they're intertwined. Yeah, but really, but how you get there is by getting rid of the democracy, right? Getting rid of the idea that the people can control something. And so well, it's really you, disconnecting because you can still have elections. It's disconnecting the democracy from the power. Yeah. You know, and, like and I guess that's what I'm power. saying. Like, how do you get there is generally going to be some form of violence and, and or intimidation at some point, because most people, most uh, people who have been raised in a culture of a democracy don't just want to give it up. Like, OK, man. Yeah. You know what? I'll let I'll let it's like today if we just said, yeah, I'll just let like Amazon, Tesla, Apple and Microsoft. And Dow Chemical and Philip Morris just run this country. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, I don't think so. That doesn't feel yeah. too good. No, for sure. So, no, no, one other point I wanted to get to on this, and I guess I'll start with a question, is uh, it goes into kind of like why this isn't more well-known. Like, do you think it's not more well-known because the, the people involved, like I said, Congress didn't keep digging and try to expose all the people that were involved. Um, so they were effectively really able to cover it up. Uh, or... Do you think it just kind of fell along the wayside more organically? Like it's there are many things that happen in history that you know aren't t tip of the tongue type of things. So, but do you think this is more of a yeah. conscious thing to keep it out of the public mind, or that just kind of just circumstance, happenstance, kind of just fell by the wayside and didn't really sh strike the chord to, to be 
part of the, the what's remembered. Um, you know. I'll, I'll definitely have to remove my Alex Jones conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> no one ever walked in the moon hat um, and say, yeah, I don't I don't think it was. Um, I think it was more organic that it fell by the wayside. I mean, if you look at it, this was like 1934. Um, the country was in the Great Depression at the throes of it. And then, you know, within five years, we get attacked by um, or sorry, six, seven years, we get attacked by um, uh, Japan and Pearl Harbor. And that's what I mean. Like, like I said earlier, there were a lot of Americans, just like today, there's a lot of Americans who, who kind of, you know, and I think this goes down to just human psychology. There's always going to be a percentage of the population in any large society that kind of gets stimulated more by authoritarian type of leaders and tendencies. And, and if so, an election doesn't go their way or willing to say, Hey, forget the election. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They have they have that kind of streak of the ends justify the means. And so yeah. I think, and that's why to me it was interesting to kind of rediscover as I was reading and preparing for today, how many, the large percentage of Americans that had sympathies for Hitler and the Nazi party and just those kind of sentiments in general. Like, yeah. remember, we started eugenics in the United States. Yeah. So this idea of racial purity and that races were different and that, you know, and what I mean is, 10 years later, by 1944, no one was sitting there saying, oh, we love Hitler in America, right? It, yeah. it became embarrassing to say, I used to think that way or whatever. So I, I do think part of this going into, uh, you know, the obscurity in, in, in our history is not necessarily a conspiracy of just trying to keep it out. Like I would say the Daughters of the Confederacy and and forces in the late 1800s to early 1900s um, doing a propaganda on the on the history of the Civil War, yeah. trying to kind of whitewash the role of the, the Confederacy, the yeah, and try to erase Reconstruction, correct? And all that. The, the heritage, not hate, and this was just about states' rights. I think yeah. I think that is more of a sinister and malicious attempt. And um, but this, yeah, yeah. yeah, intentional. This one, I think, is just a lot of stuff happened after, <laughs> and I think this kind of right because, after too. A lot of significant yeah. stuff that everybody knows about: World yeah. War II, the New Deal. Everybody knows about the New Deal. Everybody knows about dropping the bombs. You know, the atomic bombs. Yeah, exactly. Like, all within the next like ten years, ten to twelve years. And so now I and agree I, and I with think you. because also this didn't get to an operational level. Like if you put it, if you look at it that way, January six actually got was an example that that attempt got a lot further than this one. Yeah. I mean, they actually carried out violence. Yeah. They, if they would have chilled out in, in December, like, you know what? Forget it. That wouldn't be remembered the same right, right now. Exactly. You know, like so. But I, I agree with you, actually, that this it, it probably is more organic in the sense because of all the things that happened right after it. And because I think the biggest factor in that is that the it. it the things that would have captured the public's imagination and would have kind of set it in stone, like the names of these super famous people that everyone had heard of that were involved in this coming out or them testifying at Congress and trying to defend themselves or whatever. That's the more, and I don't want to say salacious as if it was, if, if it's not meaningful, but the kind of stuff that like unnamed, unnamed faceless people trying to do something bad doesn't stick in the memory. You know, it just doesn't. Yeah. And so when they didn't, when that didn't come out, and there's theories out there that FDR agreed to keep them, keep their names private as long as they stopped messing with his new deal, you know, and who knows, yeah. you know, like what, what the truth is with that. But like the, the fact that that piece was kept out of the public, you know, like the, the, the hearings that they did, they, they interviewed Smedley Butler. He had brought in a, a, a news newspaper guy to help him corroborate stuff while all things were going on. And they, 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 they interviewed, you know, had they, those two testified and a couple other people. 
and that's it as far as like the test. Like they didn't go up the chain. So without that, then it's understandable to me why. And then again, because they didn't get to operational and we don't know who was really behind it. It kind of would fall by the wayside, particularly because, yeah, that, that was not a uneventful decade, deck two decades, because, you know, you keep going. I mean, this that the, the mid 1900s is like country changing, world changing stuff. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, to me, it, it I don't you, you don't assume just if you look at the big picture that it was sinister or that it was intentional. Now, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you on that. Yeah, yeah. No. And then before we jump, you know what a fun fact I learned? What's that? That. Um, Smedley Butler in, enlisted in the Marines in the year 1898. He was 16. And yeah, his 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 first, um, you know, the, immediately they sent because we had the Spanish American War, and you know well, that's he why he enlisted. Sent? That's why he enlisted. Yeah. yeah, but you know where he got sent? Where? Cuba, and uh, we had just annexed Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> mm. it's just interesting i was like so that's how we I always wondered like how is it even the whole time castro was in power yeah like we had yeah. a naval base in cuba yeah. but yet they're communists and they're, they were siding with the soviet i was just like that's i never our understood. land like that yeah power. and i never i never got like well how the hell does that work that yeah. we actually yeah. own part of cuba and they're our enemy but so just amazing how all this stuff is connected um you know just historically that that um you know, that was over 100 years ago. We got Guantanamo and Smedley Butler was there. Yeah. It's just interesting well, I mean, connection. He's a fascinating. <laughs> I, I, one of the things I saw in reading about him either recently or a long time ago was someone called him like the, the Forrest Gump of like the early 1900s. <laughs> like he's everywhere. And like it, it, if you if you look at his life, actually, it's a very interesting life because, yeah, he was a part of the military and a big part of the military as far as all these different campaigns where the military, in a sense, was going around and clearing out space for American capital to come in and, and do things. Uh, but he ultimately became very anti-war and wrote a book called War is a Racket. I mean, many people have heard of that, where he talks about how like all this war stuff that we're doing is just to make money for people and everybody else pays for it with taxes and with lives, you know, like yeah. and it like the profiteering and like it's a pamphlet. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes as far as the war is a racket, uh, because it's not long. You know, I read it this afternoon just, you know, having fun with it because yeah, and he goes through all the numbers, all the money, all the debt. And it's like, yeah, like this thing is not what you think. You know, it's sold yeah. in patriotism. And obviously, you know, Pearl Harbor is not necessarily what he's talking about there. But in general, he had lived it where he saw they go in, they take out what they need to take out. And the people right behind them on the boat are, you know, representatives from the company X or company Y. Yeah. Man. So I do want to move to the second topic, uh, you know, because yeah, we get into Smedley Butler and spend another hour talking about his life and his, all his stuff. But I wanted to, you know, have a conversation with you. You had sent me something this week and it was talking about uh, individual chronotypes and really what it's, it's, it goes back to it's just the, the concept of early birds or night owls and so forth as far as people that, you know, either up early, you know, no alarm or whatever, or being able to stay out late and, you know, not, you know, and, and enjoy it and, and so forth. And so it's just one of those interesting kind of human topics I wanted to, to conversate with you on. Um, so do you what do you what do you make of it that, you know, how you feel at certain times of the day does actually go beyond getting enough sleep or going to go beyond what you ate and when you ate it and the kind of foods and all that kind of stuff. But actually there's some genetic stuff going on as far as yeah. our, how, when our bodies are, are, are how they're opti- opti- opt- optimally functioning. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I think like like a lot of things we've discussed on the show as relates to um, kind of how our bodies work and and our evolution and and kind of our you know how we're hardwired in certain ways. Um, it's it's not unbelievable that we have a spectrum of uh, chronotypes uh, terms of kind of how our body relates to sleep and and then like not just sleep but as you're saying when we different human beings have different let's say peak energy and so and, and I think light, the most how how the light affects different yeah. people slightly differently but I think the, you know just to set it off like the the way that I think most of us are familiar with just simple terms would be like the early riser type and then you got the night owl type and like it's interesting reading this because it reminded me my my assistant and I in my in my professional practice we always joke with each other because I'm a morning guy like I like to be up five thirty six be at my desk by seven you know banging out emails and all that and I'm I feel all accomplished by nine ten in the morning you know like mm-hmm. half my day's done I better not call her before eleven <laughs> because. Even though she might be up at seven, eight, she just is not, not good. She'll tell me someday. I'm not, but then I get emails from her at one o'clock in the morning. Wow. You know what I mean? When I got to be in bed by nine 30. So, so she works well later in the day into the evening. I'm the morning guy. Uh, somehow we, we figure out how to talk between one and two in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, it guys, it's like, it's like you're in New York and she's in London basically. Yeah. yeah but like but it like, works. Yeah. And, um, and so that's the interesting, you know, I just, I mean, like, I, I think we all have that, um, just from people in our life, um, we understand that not everybody operates exactly the same at the same point in time in the day or, or, or in the same way. But what I found interesting, one of the things, and I'll pass it back, which from a uh, evolutionary standpoint, um, some of the stuff we're hypothesizing that humans evolved with these different chronotypes specifically when we were hunter gatherers. So that if you're kind of, if imagine small kind of village of humans out there in the middle of the wilderness where you had all these, um, creatures, right. Yeah. yeah. And bears and lions and, and things that were awake at night. And tigers. So that different, yeah. Lions, tigers, oh my, oh my. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta find this yellow brick road somewhere outside my house, but, um, no, but that, that way people would, would, would have different rhythms and would be able to be awake at different times of night. Now that so makes that sense. at least that makes at sense. least one yeah. person can always be alert, kind of up there standing guard at different times, you know. And, and it makes sense, like, like you said, saying. alert is the right word, not awake, yeah. but alert. But like alert, somebody's yeah. naturally like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good. So I'm it good. would make sense over millions of years from an evolutionary standpoint that yeah, not one chronotype would have just passed on genetically. Yeah, that you would have had this spectrum of where people can, you know, deal with different. Uh, let's say have different alertness to the to your point. You start. Uh, pulled out there yeah. uh, at different and times of the day. Now, and then it's a piece from prevention that we, we source this and they, they actually identify three, like the early bird, the night owl, and then they call it like the hummingbird, which is kind of just in the middle, so to speak. Um, not super early, not super late. I'm probably in that. Like I, throughout my life, I feel like I've been able to do either as long as like for me, I just need to be consistent is really what it is. Like I, I can do the early bird as long as I'm doing it every day. But if I ask if I don't, if I'm not consistent, then I kind of just go into the middle of the, the just sometimes I can stay up late. Sometimes I get up early or whatever. But I think that two things st- stood out to me in this is one is how the article did identify how like our society is geared more towards the early bird and then like the what they call the hummingbird, the, the, the middle ground. And so at least in terms of a lot of commerce. And so, you know, it's something that knowing your knowing how you operate yourself 
if you fit into where our society is geared, then it, you know, like you can just kind of keep it rolling. But if you're a night out, then you have to figure out ways, either where you work or the kind of work you do or who you work with, you know, like your, your, your assistant found a good boss, you know, that can work with her as far as her ability to, to, to when she's option optimally function functioning. And so, you kind of just have to pay attention to that a little bit. The other thing that stood out to me is like, hold on, I'm just oh. gonna, I'm just gonna save that quote. I'm, I'm bringing you to my next team meeting just so you can say <laughs> that again. Okay, that's the appreciate Tuesday moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. You, you'll, you'll, you'll be sitting at the head of the conference table. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that they, I took particular note of was how they were saying like if you, they did a, an experiment where they took people out like to a camping type of experience. And so there's basically no artificial light, but no indoors either. So you're just going to be exposed to the light, natural light, whatever it is at a given moment all the time. And so what they found though, is that the differences kind of contracted. They were less expressed when everybody is, is exposed to the same light stimuli consistently. And so it reminded me kind of like of the contact or excuse me, the con- in context of like epigenetics, which are like everybody's familiar with genetics and your, your genes influence this and influence that. But epigenetics is more recent when it talks about how depending on your activity, depending on what you eat, depending on what you do, your genes can be expressed differently. So you may have two genes that, that go about this one feature of your body and one or the other could be active depending on what how you're going about life. So light exposure does seem to still be a big part of this, but it's almost like how sensitive your body is to light exposure at different times or insensitive it is, you know, how long, maybe for the night owl, you just need to be exposed to light for a little bit longer before you really pick up, you know, whereas the early bird, once they see it, boom, it, it's immediate. They, they, their hormones respond immediately. Like, oh, I saw some light, I'm in. And then the same thing, like you can, if you're a night owl, you may be able to be exposed to darkness for longer before your systems to go to sleep really kick in. So that adjustability in our bodies, again, is just one of those things that you see in other areas as well and how this that might play out here. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the reality is, I mean, this is just another example of just really how complex uh, we are as living organisms. I mean, if yeah. you can really say, I mean, all the stuff we've learned over, you know, even recent years, like the microbiome in our guts, and yeah. if that's just a little off, it can throw a lot of stuff off, you know, yeah. from mental health to physical health. Then Which you is think like, about, think, if you think about that one, that like the, when we were young, you know, 80s, 90s, the obsession was to make sure there's no germs anywhere. Yeah. You know, like everything had to be sterile and it's like, yeah. well, actually. And that created new problems, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, and and, really and people like weren't that. able to protect against just normal um, pathogen type of yeah. things. And, and so that's what I'm saying is that this is another one where it's a good, it's a good example uh, that you're citing the experiment they did of bringing a bunch of people into just the more natural light and, and all that, because I think, you know, and it's like when we talked about, we did a show on caffeine or the shows that we talk about sugars and salts. Like, we don't know what humanity looks like without all this disruption. Yeah. Um, like, 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 I think we, we, when we did the show on caffeine, like 90% of human oh, beings on yeah, planet yeah. Earth are, have caffeine. We have it constantly in our veins, especially because it takes so long for it to get out of our bloodstream. Yeah. What is it, like so 48 hours or couple, something? Like, it takes a while like, to. No, it takes like several days. Oh, several so days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you, if you, um, you know, if you have one cup of coffee, you know, just twice a week, you know, spread out your body really didn't flush all that caffeine. Yeah. And so, and then there's a lot of caffeine and other things that we, we consume, which we not even realize half the time. So, um, 
the the so this one to me was interesting because as I started thinking about how maybe we're naturally wired to deal with light, timing, all that, you've you've got issues number one in in our even like more modern modern form, right? So this is not just like you and I, and you're saying the eighties and nineties, we grew up with the television. Yeah. And you could stay up late at night and watch TV, or you could have a light on in your bedroom or in your house, right? Yeah. For the last hundred years, that kind of was normal. Well, now we've upped it again with all the cell phones in our hands and the iPads in our faces. So we got constantly some light on, whether no matter how late at night. Yeah. And and what does that do to our emotional state and all that and 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 everything else when we don't have this the right rhythms? And that leads me just to finish off with that is looking at when when you tie that in to then how we eat when we talk about everything in our water supply, the microplastics, the fact that our, our chronotypes are getting interrupted by, by, by our lifestyle, it's no wonder that a lot of people just feel off yeah. and don't know how to explain it. And that could manifest itself in depression, obesity, you know, other things that then it's like, you know, we're just a constant walking experiment, I guess. No, that was exactly <laughs> where I, well, that I would say is the beginning exactly where I was about to take it because- yeah. What I was going to say, like, if if you, like, people, it's hard to listen to your body. You know, it's hard to because you don't really, like you said, you don't really have a baseline. And so, like, think of how much, like, when, you know, like, if you're just working or whatever, you're feeling a certain way in the morning. So, you might eat some sweets to compensate or, you know, you're in the afternoon, you're, you're dragging. So, you have some caffeine to compensate. So, we do a lot of things to compensate for the ebb and flow in our energy level. And so, what if just understanding our chronotype we could kind of understand the natural ebb and flow that we're going to have. Now, again, that's taken out if you eat certain foods and they make you sluggish or whatever, but just understanding like, okay, well, if I'm eating right, I'm doing everything right or doing most things right, then I'm normally going to have a dip at two o'clock. That's just how my body is. So I don't need to go get some coffee or go need to eat something, eat some sugar or whatever to try to perk myself up. My, if, I, if I just drink some water at two when I'm in the middle of that dip, it'll pass by 245 because that's just my normal rhythm. And then like that may contribute or that may be something where you could live healthier and just un- being able to anticipate how your body's going to flow based on whether it's chronotype or just how you, you know, you, you, you observe, you know, as you do day by day. And so to me, what we, and what we have basically, and that's with everything, we have all of these tools to compensate, you know, whether when we're in pain, it's like, well, look, why are we in pain? Like, that's not the question. It's just, well, no, let's get a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and let's just get rid of that pain, you know, like, so, this is just another one of those things where we're learning that no, actually we have a natural ebb and flow to, to the way our body works. And so if we choose to, we can try to pay attention to that and then lean into and kind of learn the, and, and ride the wave basically instead of always trying to fight it. Yeah. And the last point was um, it's really the genetics. So this got me thinking about, and we've done this on other shows where we talk about some of these body functions. Again, how, how, our lives are really not in our control because so much of it is genetic and how we're born. So I learned in preparing today, and I'll quote here, having a longer allele, which is spelled A-L-L-E-L-E, I had to look it up, which I'll explain in a second, having a longer allele on the P-E-R-3 circadian clock gene has been tied to morningness. And so when I read, okay, so what's an allele? An allele is an alternative form of gene caused by mutation. So I thought, when this particular PER3 
circadian clock gene. So that tells me they've, they've identified the gene for the circadian clock. When it has an alternative form of mutation that is longer, it creates, it's tied to being more of a morning person. So I probably have that mutation because I'm a morning guy. And I just thought like, so born, born into our society, obviously with the way we work nine to five and all that, again, me being a morning person is really out of my control. If that is a yeah. fact that it's just, I have this mutation that this one little gene is longer than, you know, I guess the average should be. And just again, so that's really, it's not about how great I am, but I'm waking up like, you know, crack <laughs> dawn and two day, the early bird that gets to worm because he's so responsible and he's got a good moral character. No, it's because I got a longer gene that's mutated for whatever reason, you know, because yeah. my mom sat in front of the microwave too, uh, too long while she was pregnant, and that's the mutation we got. So, go. <laughs> so, and so, I mean, now that we've had this lesson of genetics with Tunde, yes, <laughs> I think, but no, I mean, it, it's real though. I mean, like, that's, that's I mean. always, we always overestimate. Be, yeah. Well, no, we, that's a known thing. Like, psychologists notice, they talk about like, we always overestimate how much we're in control of everything that's happening around us. And, but so much of it, we don't really a actually control, but it, it's things that we, we're, we're in motion and we're part of the motion. We think we're making the wave, but really we're just riding along with it in many respects. In some respects, you know, we might splash a little bit in the ocean, but you know, it's not us kicking that, kicking you the water. You know what happened like that. is that the guys that tried to get Smedley, you know, with the, with the coup plot, hmm. They didn't know their chronotype. Yeah, they, and they, just not, they didn't know his. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. They didn't get him at the right time of day when they were trying to negotiate with him. There it was. So there you go. See, you learned something new. Maybe that's why we haven't heard of him. That's, you know. <laughs> no, but, but I think we can wrap from here, man. Uh, we appreciate everybody for joining us on this episode of Call It Like I See It. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review us, tell us what you think, send it to a friend. And until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Galana. All right, we'll talk to you next time.